Hello and welcome to Energy Policy Cast, where we share recent research in energy policy. I'm your host, Daniel Sneo. In my limited worldview, not in my backyard or nimbyism was one of the annoyances related to social acceptance that energy planners had to deal with in energy projects. And some time ago, I had the good fortune to get this worldview expanded in our previous episode with uh, Holle Vlokas on the Tentrans project. Today, this view will be further expanded. I'm lucky enough to have Russell McKenna on board in the podcast, who's a professor. Uh, and during his time as a leader of uh, Danish Technical University's Energy Systems Group, Russell and his collaborators initiated a study which will give us a further understanding of public acceptance and especially a novel and interesting way to quantify this. The preprint we discuss today is titled Quantifying the trade-off between cost efficiency and public acceptance for onshore wind. So I'll just interrupt myself there and apologies for that. But since our interview, Russell's paper has been accepted for publication in Nature Energy. So uh, just to keep things in good order, we will uh, add links to both papers in the notes for this episode, of course, along with all other references mentioned in the podcast. Now back to the podcast. I would like to welcome you, Russell. It's a pleasure to have you, and I'm, I'm really uh, looking forward to discuss your study on this. But perhaps you can briefly, before we go in depth with the study, explain a bit about yourself. You are a true cosmopolitan, moving around in Europe, coming from UK to Germany, over Denmark, where you and I met, and now in Scotland. So, uh, can you just explain a bit about your background? Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for um, inviting me here. I'm glad to glad to be here. So, yeah, I do have quite a mixed, you might say, cosmopolitan uh, background. So I started off, um, I'm British, um, actually British and German, so I have dual nationality. Now, um, I studied and did my PhD in Bath in the UK. So my background's in engineering. That's another way I'm cosmopolitan. I've sort of migrated across disciplines, you might say. <laughs> Because after my PhD, I then went to Karlsruhe, where you said before the um, studies published where I used to work and I worked at the chair for energy economics so that's like uh, going from engineering to economics um, although in that role we sort of combined and, and much of my work ever since combines technical and economic let's say dimensions of of energy systems um, and I was there for best part of a decade uh, and then in 2018 October, I moved up to DTU, um, where we met, as you said, um, and shortly after then took over the energy systems analysis uh, group there. And more recently, in fact, very recently, I moved to Aberdeen, exactly, professor for energy transition. And what I've tried to do recently with uh, my research is to move away from purely technical and economic approaches And that's one of the articles we're going to talk about today uh, to consider some of the softer um, elements, if you like, of the energy transition. And in this case, the, the element we're interested in is the public or social acceptance of renewable technologies. Right. 
Thank you for that introduction. I, th I think that's very interesting. And I, I, I also note that I think often engineers are moving into to the space of uh, economists, where I, <laughs> I rarely see it happening the, the, the other way, but perhaps we can make a separate uh, discussion on that at an, another point. The motivation for, for this study, you, you touched a bit upon uh, expanding, expanding your view and the methodologies addressing social acceptance, but, but why, why did you do uh, this, this uh, study of the UK specifically? Um, yeah, good question. I mean, you, could, you might say, well, why not do it somewhere else? Or, um, so the first thing was uh, the data that's available for the UK. Maybe we come back to that later, but yeah, there's a really good data set. Uh, that we used in the study uh, and that we used to, to measure, if you like, to sort of quantify the, the public acceptance of, or at least the impact on the landscape. Uh, but more generally, um, I mean, there's, there's a lot of studies and a lot of research looking at um, how much energy or electricity you can generate with wind, with onshore wind, some with offshore as well. And these studies show that there's a, there's a massive potential. Um, and a lot of it's at reasonable cost. So, you know, if you were to build it, uh, you could make money with it. Um, and that's like, a, if you like, a global view of, of a whole country, maybe. But on a local level, there's a lot of opposition. I mean, you mentioned NIMBY in your introduction, and that is the case, right? So there's often a lot of local opposition to wind projects, and there's concerns about property prices, about uh, spoiling the... or, or impacts on the landscape, perhaps also wildlife concerns about birds migrating or bats or various other things. Um, so you've got a bit of a, a tension there between, a, you know, what seems to be attractive and economically attractive and good for the environment or the climate because it's, you know, it's a carbon-free energy source uh, on, a, on a high sort of macro level, but on a micro level, you've got this opposition. And so I've done uh, a lot of research in the past on this sort of macro level, looking at costs and potentials. I wanted to improve these studies by accounting for, at least trying to account for some of these local opposition factors. And so I came across this um, database uh, that will come on to Scenic or not. Actually, it was a few years ago. Uh, this was, <laughs> it took about three years to do this work, so it's been a, a sort of a long-term project. Uh, I read an article in The Economist and this was like a feature on this um, this data that has been recorded, and the, and I was really interested by this. I sort of thought, yeah, this this data has has many applications, and one of the ones um, that I wanted to use it for is to look at the consequences when we try to save beautiful landscapes for uh, wind potentials. So that's how we came to the UK, or actually Great Britain, because Northern Ireland is not included. Right. So. So this uh, scenic or not database, uh, w what is that specifically? So you mentioned that th this is sort of the foundation for, for this study in particular. Exactly. Yeah, so scenic or not, uh, I think, is a, a research project and also a database, uh, which is based on, uh, there is a related um, website and project that it, that it builds on. And that, I think that's called geograph, geograph.org. And this is basically a platform where people can upload uh, geotagged or georeference photos. So if you imagine you're out with your smartphone or your camera on a trip or just out in the countryside, uh, you might take some photos uh, and you might decide that some of those are worth sharing. You can upload those to this website and you 
specify a location where this photo was taken and other things like you know put your name on there and the date um, and then there's a photo in the sort of public domain and what happens with these photos in the scenic or not project is that they're rated according to their scenicness so scenicness is another way of saying you know how beautiful is this landscape uh, and they're rated from one to ten one being not very scenic uh, ten being very scenic very beautiful um, and because one of the main impacts, certainly on a local level of onshore wind, is that it impacts the landscape, um, we were able to use this, or we, we decided to use this as a proxy for um, the value of the landscape to the people who are observing it. And so basically where the scenicness values were high, uh, we excluded these areas or these regions from, from the potential sites or um, increase the distance away. Right. I, I really like that approach, making uh, this this kind of, of a kind of a crowdsourced uh, evaluation of, of the, the scenic, scenicness and, and by proxy of that, the value of, of the landscape. So moving in into uh, to to your re results uh, and and perhaps also your recommendations uh, for for further work on this uh, and what what to do, the the you, you say one one place in the article that the outcome of planning applications for onshore wind are strongly correlated with scenicness. So that seems a, a pretty strong conclusion. But can you uh, perhaps specify what what does this uh, imply in, in in a bit more detail, perhaps? Mm. Yeah, sure. Um, so maybe it helps if I say um, that there were some there were some previous studies that had looked at the um, the variables or the main driving factors for the outcome of planning applications for onshore wind, but also for other renewables like uh, ground-mounted solar PV. Um, and these looked at things like the type of land use, uh, the distance to the nearest national park, for example, or the distance to an urban area, all sorts of different things. And they found some more or less uh, weaker or stronger correlations there. And so we, we extended this approach in our paper to also consider seedingness. And what we found is, yes, yeah, similar correlations to other studies, but the novelty with our studies is the scenicness dimension. So we found that in the more scenic landscapes, um, and these are landscapes like, you know, stereotypically beautiful landscapes, so they're very open. Perhaps you have some water in there, you have some, uh, some natural sort of organic curves or, or sort of shapes in the landscape. Um, this kind of thing. So the, so the more beautiful or the more scenic the landscape, the more likely uh, planning application is to be rejected. right? And that's if everything else stays the same. Obviously, we had a statistical model there that controls for the other variables. So you know, if you increase the scenicness, but you're at the same time you, um, I don't know, reduce the wind speed or something, then you know, we accounted for that. But yeah, so we found if you increase the scenicness by 1%, um, so a 1% higher value on the scale of 1 to 10, you have a 6% lower probability that a planning application for a wind site will be positively evaluated. 
And right. also controlled. I mean, one question that arose during the study was obviously these pictures are uploaded and rated over a period of time. And one question that we asked ourselves when using this data, you know, when were the photos taken and when was the uh, when were any winter uh, parks in the vicinity built? And so we did check uh, this. So when we were looking at existing wind parks, um, we found incidentally that a lot of the I think it was said three or four wind parks in the UK are in what you might call high or very high scenic areas. I think with values above seven. So yes, that, that's the that's that's one of the main findings. Right. So so can you speculate? I, I, I know uh, your paper shows one thing, but but why why does this translate uh, into societal uh, decisions on? Uh, planning applications being being uh, granted or not? Do you have any uh, any feeling where where's the decision made based on the cynicness? So essentially, what I'm saying is that that one uh, theory could be that the more resourceful people are living in the more beautiful areas. Would would that be too much of a stretch to say that? Or what's your feeling regarding this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that could be an explanation, but we didn't go that far. All the only the the statistical model that we uh, developed only um, establishes the connection between the scenic landscape and the probability of rejecting the wind park, but it doesn't examine the facts behind that. And I right. think most of what you speculate is, I would also speculate, right? So I would say these the people living locally in these more beautiful landscapes probably, in general, are more wealthy and have more resources to be able to oppose uh, the planning application. Yeah. You also say that there is a strong link between locations with, with an economical wind resource and high cynicness. So I suppose that means that uh, the windiest uh, areas are also the most cynic and are they also the most interconnected uh, to, to transmission infrastructure or how should that be understood? Uh, good question. Yes. I mean, what we haven't mentioned yet is that in this another novelty in this study is that we analyze the distance of these areas from the nearest transformer. So, so essentially, you know, these wind parks, when they're built, they need to be connected to the uh, electricity network and the way they're, they're typically connected to a transformer station or a substation. Um, so we analyze the distance to the nearest substation. Um, and what we found is um, that there's a strong link between economic locations for wind. This is, first of all, without the connection to the, um, um, to the network and the uh, value of the scenicness. Or in other words, the, the most scenic places or locations tend to have, um, and you can also find this uh, in the literature, the type of uh, topography and the type of surface means that they tend to be associated with better wind uh, resources, so higher average wind speeds, this kind of thing. So that, that was one finding, but an, another finding was they also tend to be remote because they're further from maybe their mountainous or elevated areas. And so the economic potential only really relates to the wind potential without the connection. Once we also calculate the connection costs to the nearest substation, then 
that is a large shift in the results because as you can imagine if a remote area is very scenic it has a good wind resource but then it costs a lot to connect it to the uh, to the network infrastructure so we then see a shift in our results between the we looked at several scenarios and we see that the most economical uh, sites when considering scenicness but not the network connections uh, are very different to ones that um, you know consider this additional cost and we actually found that Overall, for the whole of Great Britain, um, on average, the connection costs account for about half of the total cost. So in other words, the, the total cost to install the wind park doubles once you account for the uh, connection costs. Yeah. Right. So that's a very substantial share of, of, of the investment, I suppose. So when someone else in Denmark, in the US, in South America, where we also have listeners, when, when someone wants to expand this method into their own uh, country or area, is is this method that you've applied, uh, is that sort of drag and drop? Mm. Um, good question. Yeah, so in principle, the method is transferable, uh, but we relied on this um, crowdsourced data sets, uh, scenic or not. So. You know, that, that was kind of the starting point for us. And without that, um, it's a little bit difficult. Um, so either you would need a similar database, a public um, valuation of landscape, uh, scenicness, beauty, or whatever you want to call it, or you would need to infer this um, this value. And that's something that, that uh, we're looking at or looking into at the moment, how to transfer this. And some of the researchers and also colleagues, co-authors on this paper uh, in the UK at the Warwick Business School and the Alan Turing Institute, um, they have looked at, at this um, as well. So the relationship between the, the scenicness values and the type of land that's actually there or, you know, what is the, in the feature? And they've used various approaches of machine learning and artificial, artificial intelligence to sort of... Um, match scenicness values with particular features in a picture. And the way that we're looking uh, to extend it to other countries in Europe, for example, where you don't have this scenicness data, is to use the land use. This is a very rough first approximation. So you have this, there's a database called Corin, uh, Corin Land Cover, it's called. Uh, so it's uh, quite a detailed land cover database for the whole of Europe. And this breaks down Europe into like 100 meter squares. And it tells you in each square based on satellite uh, data, so it's remote sensing data. It tells you what this square, what is this, you know, is it an urban, is it a building, is it a street, is it uh, an aggregate, like a field or a meadow or a forest, this kind of thing. Uh, and so we're trying to use this data to, first of all, establish a connection between the scenicness of the landscape and the land use, and then to transfer this to other countries based on the land use. Um, that's that's a quite a rough way of doing it and the first results suggest that it's a little bit too rough because for, you can imagine for any one land use category you have a, a quite a, a large range of scenicness values because it depends on a lot of other factors right you could have an industrial scene or an industrial let's say landscape that is actually quite scenic and on the other hand you could have a, a very remote um area near the coast where you might say actually that should be scenic but there's a nuclear power station right in front of me you know it's not so so it does have its limitations yeah so ideally you would have some similar data right so i think that's interesting to hear also uh, regarding the future prospects of, of the potential uh, extension of the research 
One one thing you mentioned is to to perhaps as a next step uh, have these uh, proxies of of landscape quality um, and combine this with the size of, of for instance wind turbines installed and then uh, adjust in sizes or in placement to optimize. That's my own interpretation to optimize the placement or perhaps the size and and quantity of of wind turbines. I find that a very interesting planning tool. I guess it essentially could become. Are you curious in 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 going further into this and where do you see uncharted territory uh, within this realm? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, this uh, yes, I am very curious and I definitely want to continue in this um, line of research. I think really we only just touched the tip of the iceberg here, so I think it's a start. Um, and you know the paper is currently under review, so hopefully the reviewers also convinced that it's a start and it's a good start. But yes, there's a lot more to do in this area. Um, I mean, the first thing is we take uh, this scenicness as some kind of proxy for the landscape impact, but public acceptance or social acceptance has a lot more dimensions than this, right? It's not just about the landscape. There are things like noise, uh, the wildlife that I mentioned at the start, a lot of other, you know, it's multifaceted. And so one um, maybe alternative approach would be to try to consider some of these other aspects uh, with appropriate data sets or working with uh, social scientists who have a better understanding um, of the um, nuances of, you know, so preferences of individuals when it comes to these renewable technologies. Um, but more generally, I mean, my objective would be to try to develop this method into a, a framework so that for, for a, um, let's say, arbitrary location, um, a lot of the work I do you, tries to use open source data sets like OpenStreetMap or Bing Maps, where you know anyone, anyone anywhere in the world can use these. So my sort of vision for this would be that you could use this kind of open data uh, combined with some sorts of rules, some some planning rules uh, that are augmented to consider these acceptance aspects. And, and part of this is like the offset distance that you require to your settlement. Uh, part of it relates to the type of land, so the land use, like we were saying before. But part of it would need to be empirically um, defined. So these other aspects, obviously, the, these are not uh, considered yet in any kind of maps. Yeah. Ah, another thing I wanted to mention is what a, an interesting uh, perspective or approach would be to combine uh, the work we did with uh, some insights from surveys. This could be surveys uh, that analyze uh, compensations. So they, they look at stated preferences or revealed preferences, looking at property prices um, in order to infer acceptance costs. So, you know, there has been some work actually from uh, former colleagues at DTU, uh, Pablo, who maybe you, you knew earlier. So his PhD was all about this and he's collaborated also with uh, Henrik, um, looking at acceptance costs uh, for onshore wind in Denmark. And he developed and employed various approaches to do that um, based on different, whether you use surveys or property prices. And I could imagine that a similar approach coupled with this, uh, with the scenicness data could be quite promising. Uh, because one of the limitations or maybe the main limitation of using this scenicness, these photographs 
is that the scenicness value is given by one viewer of this photograph. So this is one person that goes to see a landscape and says, I appreciate this landscape. So it's a 10 or a nine or whatever. But this value does not account for the, for the frequency of views, let's say, that this landscape gets. Um, so if it's somewhere very remote that maybe 10 people see a year, that landscape should implicitly be, have a lower overall value than somewhere that's very popular that also has a high um, uh, scenicness value. And I think using these inferred um, acceptance costs could be a way to do that. So to account for the fact that some places are simply more populated than others or, or receive more visitors per year. Right, interesting points. And of course, we'll link to the paper. This is uh, by Pablo Heviakok and Henrik uh, Klinge-Jakobsen from DTU. And then we'll make sure to link to those papers as well. But good point and, and in interesting future prospects as well. I, I guess it's pretty virgin land, uh, much of this public acceptance. So uh, lots of interesting stuff to do. So thanks. Now we are uh, ending uh, the episode and, and approaching the peer review part where I would like to invite you, Russell, to to make your suggestions or recommendations on, on essentially anything you like that the listeners uh, perhaps would would be interested in, in having a further look or listen at. So, so please, the floor is yours. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mentioned reading this article in The Economist before. I'm a big fan of The Economist. So anything, you know... I would recommend uh, read the Economist, but they also have a podcast, and it's very good. So for when you're on, a, you know, when you're traveling around on the train or whatever, um, it's quite nice just to switch off and get the new get their articles read to you. Um, but on a more kind of related note, um, talking about these wind resource potential, so there was an article recently published in Energy Policy, a quite well-renowned um, academic journal. Um, entitled something like the socio-technical potential for onshore wind in Europe. Um, and this, well, long story short, this study made some simplifying assumptions like all studies do and came to some very large numbers for the potential of onshore wind in Europe. So a lot higher than any previous studies. But at the same time, it was um, it was framed as, as somehow accounting for some of the barriers that we've been talking about today. You know, obviously the title uh, socio-technical. Uh, and so I, I managed to put together a, a very strong team of, of uh, European researchers in, in this field. And we um, wrote a comment, uh, like a response to this to this study. And that's going to appear shortly in energy policy. So maybe by the time this um, podcast is online, I could give you a reference for that. If not, it's in press. So it should appear probably within the next month or so. Um, basically, we we, we criticized it uh, for various aspects, and I think the authors of the original study will also uh, respond shortly. Right. That's going to be interesting, uh, and, and, and that's certainly relevant because I think we need to move beyond the pure technical into the, uh, including the, the acceptance and the social aspects as well. So thank you for this work, Russell. It's been a pleasure discussing, and uh, I really enjoyed our discussion. I hope our listeners have as well. Um, so with that, I'll uh, just say thanks a lot. Okay. Yeah, thank you, Daniel. It's been a pleasure.
As always, you can find links to the resources mentioned in the podcast in the notes to this episode. I'm very happy to hear your comments, so get in touch with me, Daniel Snail. My details are also in the notes. If you rate us in whatever platform you're using, you may also help the research reach new ears. Sound design is by Dear Caesar, and the podcast is hosted by Technical University of Denmark's Sustainability Division. We publish whenever there is new research and when we can make schedules meet. So consider Energy Policycast more as a surprise gift in your podcast feed than a regular broadcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs>